Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at BaltimoreSportsReport.com. You are listening to Baltimoreans, the home of the all-weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman. This is Alan Smith. Let's get stupid. Baltimoreans. Hello, Baltimoreans. How are y'all doing? The weather here in New York is gray. It is cloudy. It is cold, but the weather in the all-weather fan universe may be even worse. (laughs) It's, ah, man, it was a really tough day of following the baseball news, a really tough week of following the baseball news, and you could even say a really tough off-season of following baseball news. You know, I was saying to uh, sometime Baltimoreans guest Ben Mastin today on the internets, it has been the strangest off-season that I can remember, starting with the Prince Fielder trade. Yeah. It has just been bizarre land. And I would also like to address something else that uh, I am feeling. Mm-hmm. And I actually have not heard this from any of our listeners because they're wonderful people. But <laughs> I can imagine that if a hypothetical listener tuned into Baltimoreans, they might find that our, our recent episodes have not so much been characterized by uh, a lot of baseball talk. Well... I think it's been spiritually baseball talk. I agree. I agree. But but I would like to... Boring, long-winded, lots of scratching. <laughs> Spoiler alert, uh, there's going to be a certain amount of political jibber-jabber on the program this <laughs> evening. I'm sure you'll be shocked to learn, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but what I would like to say about that is that I have come to view our podcast as an open challenge to the Baltimore <laughs> Orioles front office. Make us talk about baseball. Give us something worthwhile to talk about, and maybe, just maybe, we will. Because you know who has a vested interest in what we talk about here? Dan Dan Duquette. Duquette. (laughs) Speaking of baseball, uh, episode 79 is the uh, 79, the number 79, is the record of cumulative weeks at number one on the Billboard charts. Is it now? It is, held by um, the king, Elvis Presley. Uh, I, I realize, for those keeping track at home, that this has nothing to do with baseball. But it's sort of picking up Sam's point. Now, that is a very dominant run by Elvis Presley. 79 weeks, cumulative total weeks at number one. Um, which is dominant on par with the 70s Steelers, the 90s Bulls, and the 1970s Baltimore Orioles. Um, you aren't getting to that sort of success in our modern up-and-down rock-and-roll era. People are just sort of flashing the pans, and even Bieber is never going to challenge that much number one. Especially not if he uh, keeps tweeting pictures of his tookus. <laughs> the 79 Orioles, by the way, went 102-57 and and lost Game 7 for the World Series to the Pittsburgh Pirates, just so I don't totally neglect the relevant baseball numbers. But I do want to take a page from the Bird's Eye View boys, who so often use music to make a point and take you all on a bit of an audio journey because when we're talking about dominance and Elvis, Elvis did more than just dominate his own time in rock and roll history. In fact, Elvis has been directly connected to both ends of the Billboard charts. The very first Billboard chart, which was posted in 1940, featured the music of Tommy Dorsey, Bing Crosby, and of course the immortal Artie Shaw. They didn't do the billboard all that often back in 1940, so he only got three. But still, Artie Shaw, while unquestionably one of the best clarinetists of all time, was a bit of a mixed bag. He was married eight times, accused by more than one wife of being emotionally abusive. 
He dabbled in communism, not in Nam, of course. Um, and his band was the very first white group to ever tour the South with a full-time black vocalist. Do you know who that black vocalist was, Sam? Was it Billie Holiday? It was Baltimore's very own Billie Holiday. Um, Shaw is given credit for launching her amazing career. Billy, of course, sang the jazz classic Blue Moon, which was then covered to great acclaim by Elvis Presley. But I can do you one better than that. Billy also appeared on a telethon in 1958 with Dean Martin, himself a Billboard number one mainstay. Dean Martin was in the Rat Pack with Frank Sinatra, who performed Love Me Tender with a young Elvis in 1960. So, Elvis is between two and four levels of separation from the very creation of the Billboard charts, depending on how you want to play the game. Meanwhile, the current top 100 Billboard list is topped by a little ditty called Timber, which is a Pitbull anthem featuring Keisha. Keisha's second album, Warrior, not only was heavily influenced by Iggy Pop, but even featured him on a single track called Apocrypha. Now, here's Iggy playing behind me, doing a cover of Elvis's Rip It Up. But I can do you one better. In 1991, Iggy Pop toured with Alice in Chains, playing crossover on two of their songs regularly on that tour. Members of some of grunge's biggest acts, including Sean Kinney of Alice in Chains, sat down with Johnny Cash in 1993 and his son, John Carter Cash, and recorded a cover of Willie Nelson's The Time of the Preacher. And Cash, of course, was a member of the Million Dollar Quartet with none other than Elvis Presley. I think we already knew that Elvis Presley is something of a big deal, but it turns out he's intimately connected to every single musical act that has ever existed, <laughs> or at least that has ever been worthy of being ranked one number one of the Billboard Top 100. Later on this year, I'm going to connect him to Mozart, but I didn't get that far yet. And on this day in history, in 1957, filming began on Elvis Presley's second movie, Loving You. Well, 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 well. A cross-platform genius. I bet, I bet, Alan, that you feel, and I can tell from the look on your face, that you feel like you just put a nice little button on that Terpsichorean rant. But I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to the very beginning uh -oh. of uh -oh. what you just said and take umbrage uh -oh. with your characterization of Artie Shaw as the best clarinetist of all time. <laughs> what I of, said one of. Oh, oh, <laughs> well, okay. My umbrage has no basis. <laughs> I won't say what of Sidney Bechet. A sir. fair question. A fair question. I won't say what of Sidney Bechet, but actually I will because as we sit here on this show and do what we always do, which <laughs> is to wish that things were different and to think back, perhaps, to those great Orioles teams of the 1970s uh -huh. with a sheen of nostalgia <laughs> staining our eyelids. Perhaps, there is perhaps no greater anthem for the glory days in Baltimore, the Weaver days, than the most beautiful song ever recorded by a woodwind player. That song was recorded by Sidney Bechet. It's called I Remember When. And it sounds like this. Now, isn't that beautiful? That is a beautiful a song, song. 
I think it would make a lovely music bed while we tell you about what's coming up on the show this evening. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, uh, coming up next, of course, we're going to get to our, our most popular recurring segment, the Al Pardo Franchise Report. You remember Al Pardo, right, Alan? Of course. Who could forget Al? Who could forget Al Pardo? He was, of course, a catcher for the 1985-86 to 86 Orioles, posting a 135, 155, 175 triple slash across 129 plate appearances. That's 129 plate appearances slashing cumulatively yes, below uh, the Mendoza line. <laughs> indeed. <laughs> Uh, you, uh, while we're talking about his cumulative statistics, we should also point out that he caught 16% of attempted base stealers. That is good for less than half of the league average. <laughs> After that, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to speak to our distinguished guest. We actually have a pretty distinguished guest this evening. Somebody from the real world. <laughs> Joelle Gamble will be joining us. She is the national field strategist for the Roosevelt Institute Campus Network. I would tell you why we have her here to talk, but it would spoil something we're going to get to in a second. For the seventh inning sketch, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you may be you may be sitting there. You may be thinking to yourself, man, I wish it was baseball season. I know I am. I wish I could turn on the TV or turn on the radio and hear some baseball. But what you have forgotten, forgetful listener, is that they never stopped playing baseball in Phantom City. <laughs> so we're going to catch a little bit of a live broadcast we're going to tune in and see where they are in the game. Yes. Whenever yes. we whenever we get to that point in the show. Indeed. We'll be right back with the Alpardo franchise report. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, the Al Pardo Franchise Report. In honor of Big Al, let's get right to the news. Let's do it. So uh, we, we're, we're hearing our first item of business for this week. Mm-hmm. And remember, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to rank every item of business from um, a, a out, a strikeout, to a home run, and everywhere in between. The first item of business for this week is... The fact that Manny Machado, according to his doctor, is six to eight weeks ahead of schedule on his recovery and is now sure to be ready for opening day. I have a two-part ranking for this, Alan Smith. Okay. Uh, in a less pathetic offseason, I would rank this uh, a, a, a double. Okay, okay. Um, a ground rule double, I right. would say, because okay. I wouldn't want Manny to be running too hard here early in the season. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, I Let would him say, just kind of cruise into second, <laughs> <laughs> standing up. You know, yeah. You know, he can he can rebuild strength over the course of the season. Uh, I would I would say that in a normal off season because I don't think that it's wise for us to put all of our success eggs in the Manny Machado <laughs> basket. However, as Jonah Carey tweeted today. Assuming Machado is healthy and we get a starting pitcher, the Orioles could contend. That is a tremendous amount of pressure to put <laughs> on the admittedly very broad and, and strong shoulders of young Emmanuel P. Machado. Okay. Uh, and so in this offseason, it needs to be classified as a home run, but it's one of those home runs that's like it's reviewed by the umpires. <laughs> like it bounces off the top of the wall. 
and you know maybe it goes in and out of Mike Trout's glove. Okay. Okay. Um, I don't off like co- off Conseco's head, kind of a home run. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, I'm uncomfortable with the amount of pressure or the amount of import that is riding on Manny Machado, not only being healthy, but uh, becoming uh, the 12-win player we need him to be in order for this to be a worthwhile season in Baltimore. I'm going to give it a walk, a base on balls. Interesting. Because I want him to walk before he runs. (laughs) Much like your double analogy, Mm. I am terrified. I am terrified that we're going to rush him back too early and that six to eight weeks too early means one of two things. It either means everyone expects him to be the savior and he's rushing back, or it means he's on one of those superhuman recovery times that someone like the the Ravens uh, linebacker Terrell Suggs was on when he recovered in a third of the amount of time from a triceps tear. Right. Um, which pretty much means he's using steroids. <laughs> so I'm nervous about these miraculous recovery times. As am I. And I don't want them to be connected to anything else. So I'm just going to give it a walk. Mm-hmm. Ease your way back in. Don't come back unless you're absolutely sure because I got you penciled in for the next 15 years and I can lose 15 games. <laughs> I would also I would also like to state that uh, I think a walk is a good ranking for this because we need Manny to take more walks That's true. this year. That's true. Please, God. And not swinging would be a good way at the beginning of the season to avoid putting too much pressure on the old knees. That's true. That's true. Just, just stand in there and take for a while, Manny. Get the eye back. Item number two. Item number two on the Al Pardo franchise report. Mm-hmm. Moving right along. Uh, Alan Smith, I don't know if you noticed today, kind of slipped under the radar. But the Masahiro Tanaka <laughs> sweepstakes have ended. Huzzah! And you will be shocked. Shocked. More shocked than Claude Rains in Casablanca. <laughs> to learn that he has signed with the New York Yankees. He's signed a contract of seven years, $155 million. That includes an opt-out clause after year four, meaning that the average annual value, annual value of the contract could be even higher. And of course, this $155 million value does not include the posting fee, which is $20 million. I'm going to give this a strike three looking on a slow EFIS pitch <laughs> because you see it coming from miles away. You do. And you just can't get out of the way. There's nothing you can do because your timing's off and it's just gonna it's just gonna squeak by there at, at 62 miles an hour mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because look we've known ever since the steroid scandal got going really got burning again this most recent time with Alex Rodriguez that he was gonna end up getting at least 160 games off not being able to play this year and the Yankees were gonna get that 24 million dollars back to spend however they wanted which means that they were free to pursue Tanaka, and that he has been waiting until that money was freed up so he could sign with the Yankees. It's fucking inevitable, and it pisses me off, because once again, the Yankees have now managed to uh, 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 coast along just fine when Alex Rodriguez was a terrifying masher, and then get rid of him on this downside of his career. Something that the Angels are not going to be able to do, the Phillies certainly have not been able to do. It's just that the Yankees seem to be the only team who is not penalized for their incredibly stupid spending. Yeah. So it is a strike three swinging, a strike three looking at a pitch that everyone saw coming, 
but we still can't get out of the goddamn way. <laughs> um, I am going to give it. I'm going to give it um, a a swinging bunt by <laughs> by a pitcher. Okay, which results in him twisting his ankle as he runs to first base. Uh, uh, ending his season prematurely. Wow! Because I think that That's the dramatic. posting system that that we have apparently decided is okay with Nippon Professional Baseball is throwing the entire free agent market out of whack. That's true. Because look at what has happened now. The unquestionably the best pitchers on the free agent market, good pitchers to a man: Obaldo Jimenez, Matt Garza, Irvin Santana, Bronson Arroyo. None of these men have jobs in the major leagues right now. And you know why that is? It's because all the teams with the most money who were going to be able to set the market, even if they weren't going to sign these guys, they were going to, all of these guys, they were going to set the market. They were all waiting for Masahiro Tanaka to decide, am I going to come to the United States and play baseball? Who's going to be the team that signs me? I'm going to go on this tour. All I'm going to go to this <laughs> hotel and hold court and have all of these, these, these uh, front office guys come and try to woo me and have an entire masterpiece theater sketch set on this very event he brought that on himself <laughs> <laughs> he brought nick markovich's oh, no, no. brilliant comedy writing on himself rightfully so rightfully so and and the result of this is that the bar for an a completely unknown quantity a man who has never thrown a pitch at the major league level who at age 25 has already thrown 1315 innings that's a lot of innings, man. And that's the thing about the innings. It doesn't matter what league those were in. Those are still pitches on a shoulder. It's true. That's still that's still a big windup, a big delivery to home plate. The fee for that caliber of pitcher, which is unknown, is seven years, $155 million, which amounts to a de facto raise for Santana, Jimenez, Garza, and Arroyo. They're all going to get more money now because now they're the next best available and right. the bar has been set that high for a guy who has never thrown a pitch in the major leagues. But don't worry, the Orioles have a pitching counter of their own because we've just heard that Brett Tomko is going to be in camp yes. possibly this Friday. Brett Tomko, ladies and gentlemen, who, lest you forget... Last pitched in the major leagues in 2011, appearing in eight games for the Rangers. Last pitched decently in 2005, posting a 4.48 ERA for San Francisco over 190 innings. That's and nine has... years ago for those counting at home. <laughs> nine years ago. Would you like to know how many times Brett Tomko has posted a sub-4 ERA in a full season? How many times? One! <laughs> that was during his rookie season in... 1997. Yes, there's a 19 in front of that year because it's more than 14 years ago. Well, I certainly feel like I'll see your Tanaka, Brian Cashman, and I will raise you a Brett Tomko. Uh, the only good thing about the fact that Brett Tomko is throwing on Friday for the Orioles is that it means that Charlie Hoppus is a soothsayer. <laughs> Because this is not something that surprises us necessarily, but it is good to mention. We've known Charlie for a long time. Perhaps you're just getting to know him. Uh, Charlie, if you're not a close listener to the program, I would recommend going back and listening to episode Schmermdy Flermdy. <laughs> I can't remember which one it is, but Charlie wrote a sketch uh, in which 
Dan Duquette had imprisoned the Orioles spastics. I'm sorry. Uh, Charlie phoned in in absolute panic because he had been taken captive by oh, that's Dan right. Duquette. It wasn't a sketch at all because <laughs> clearly the events in it have now come true. Exactly. The Orioles spastics, the reason they have not, uh, had not at that point released a new episode in some time is because Dan Duquette had imprisoned them in an underground basement and was forcing them to get in touch with absurdly out-of-date baseball players in hopes that they might be willing to come back for the Orioles. And Charlie, we thought, jokingly suggested that Brett Tomko might be one of those guys. This is recorded in audio, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> this happened several weeks ago on these airwaves. So basically... Next time the Mega Millions comes up, give Charlie Hoppus a call. <laughs> Issue number three. Did you know, Sam, that the NFL is a nonprofit organization? I did, I did learn recently that this is the case. The NFL is registered as a 501c6, which is a tax-exempt status reserved for business organizations. Your local chambers of commerce, your uh, uh, small business groups that advocate for better business practices, that sort of a thing. Now, just to give you guys a, a sense of what we're talking about here, that means that the National Football League does not pay any taxes on the revenue that it earns over a given year. Now, this does not mean that individual teams don't pay taxes. True. Your, your, your Baltimore Ravens franchise, your Dallas Cowboys franchise, they are taxed, but the NFL organization overall, the one that's the, the group that sells the ad space, the group that negotiates with the refs, that makes the rules, that negotiates stadium fees, that makes franchises able to exist and franchises new expansion teams, that organization made $9.5 billion that's in 2012. With a B. $9.5 billion in 2012. And they paid zero taxes on all of that money now here ladies and gentlemen is a list of five companies who made less than that in total revenue in 2012 but still had the decency <laughs> to pay a dime of tax visa sherwin williams bed bath and beyond hertz and coca fucking cola <laughs> Now, I will tell you, before I wrote this show prep, if you had asked me what the richest company in the world was, I would have said Coca-Cola. <laughs> it turns out it's just somewhere in the top 500 richest companies in the world. Uh, but those are just five of the more than 200 other Fortune 500 companies that pay taxes. And the NFL, which again made $9.5 billion in 2012, Pays not one dime of tax. So what's your rating? Randy Johnson fastball <laughs> to the eye socket. <laughs> Career ending injury for America. It should be noted also that the Major League Baseball uh, used to be a nonprofit organization and that the National Hockey League and the PGA both still are. Yes. Um, the Major League Baseball organization chose to give up its tax exempt status. Um, for one reason and one reason only, lest ye think that they suddenly grew a conscience, it was because of a, a law that was passed that meant that anyone who was working for a 501c6 and uh, uh, was the CEO or the executive director of said had to reveal their salary. So instead of revealing the commissioner's salary, Major League Baseball decided to just go. 
dropped yeah. the status. For for some comparison there, Roger Goodell, who is the commissioner of the National Football League, in 2011, which is the last year that figures were available, made, are you ready for it, <laughs> $29.5 million. So that means <laughs> that William H. Bud Selig <laughs> either made more than that or that he made less than that and Major League Baseball was worried it would he would feel bad if people knew about it, <laughs> so they decided to hide it from view. He was embarrassed at his uh, at the commissioner's only island getaway. <laughs> they were like private planes only, bud. Private planes only. And we know you ain't got the scratch. <laughs> I'm gonna give it a uh, a mm, a hit by pitch, which is similar to the point you just made about Randy Johnson, but. It does involve a little bit of pain, but the person still gets to take the base because regardless of how upset we are about this, the NFL is still going to get theirs, and they're still going to continue to uh, to carry on making all of this money. And it should be noted that many other very large businesses, Facebook, for example, which just had one of the largest IPOs of all time, got a tax refund this year because of their tax-exempt status as a small startup. Facebook hasn't been a small startup in quite some time, but is still filing as such as a small internet startup. So I'm not suggesting that it matters necessarily that the NFL is tax exempt. It just happens to be the loophole that that particular large organization is scooting through right now. Yeah. We're, uh, we won't talk too much more about this right now because we're going to speak actually right now to our guest for the evening, Ms. Joelle Gamble who is the National Field Strategist for the Roosevelt Institute Campus Network, uh, which is an actual nonprofit <laughs> in that it does not have $9.5 billion in revenue and is providing services for which there is no obvious financial return. So we're going to talk to her about this in just a moment. You're listening to Baltimore Ons. Home of the All Weather Fan. My name is Sam Dingman. And this is Alan Smith. Morons, you now know Alan and I's feelings about the alarming fact that the NFL avoids paying taxes. But we wanted to unpack this a little more with someone who is actually qualified to feel outrage, having spent some time thinking about our national tax burden. So joining us now is Joel Gamble, national field strategist for the Roosevelt Institute Campus Network. Joel, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. We are thrilled to have someone who is actually qualified to express an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> so, Joelle, uh, you and others, as you're in your position at the Roosevelt Institute Campus Network, are saddled with the sort of responsibility of trying to run a real nonprofit with a limited budget and the sort of uh, limitations that comes with. How do you feel knowing that the NFL has $9.5 billion in revenue and is still considered tax-exempt. <laughs> How do I feel about the NFL being tax-exempt? Well, putting aside my hurt feelings about the Niners not going to the Super Bowl, it's okay. <laughs> we still have six. Maybe Seattle can have one. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's frustrating, right? Like, what does it mean to really be doing nonprofit work and to be being able to do work that is that is for the public in a way that you don't have to contribute to 
the public good via taxes. Um, nonprofits like the Roosevelt Institute Campus Network, nonprofits that work in sustainability that work and children's services are doing clear things that support the public good. <laughs> the NFL, other than providing, I don't know, commercial space, an excuse to eat hot wings, um, <laughs> Which like I didn't that. need anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, things you don't quite need, things that probably aren't that good for you. Um, it doesn't doesn't seem to really fall into that category, so it's it's frustrating, you know. So, what do you? I mean, in your conception of the space, why do we need to have nonprofits? Do you think it's a valuable thing to have people that are outside the world of paying taxes? I mean, definitely, because it's it's, it's interesting because a lot of people talk about firms and like organizations existing to you know serve a bottom line, right? Those are those are for profit firms. They make money to make money to pay employees to keep existing. To some extent, they serve like a particular need that people have, whether it's a need for hot wings or cheese or <laughs> whatever it is that you need, you know, and they make a profit for it and they hire people, things like that. But that's, that's not explicitly something that is going towards the benefit of others. And sometimes when you're doing a public service or a public good, it's not going to turn a profit, hence nonprofits existing. Um, so it makes sense that they're exempt because they're not turning a profit. They don't have that extra cash on hand. So they can't really pay taxes and continue to function in the same way that a place like Coca-Cola can. One of the things that, that strikes me as particularly interesting about this whole issue as it pertains to the NFL is that one of the points Alan was making on his rant about how the NFL is exactly like the Hunger Games on episode 78 of Baltimoreans, um, <laughs> which if you haven't heard, pause the program now, go back and listen to that. <laughs> and welcome back. One of the things that I find interesting is that Alan raised the point that the vast majority of people who go on to careers in the NFL come from uh, low-income neighborhoods, which are not supported by robust public school systems. <laughs> Those are the kind of public schools that would be supported by the tax revenue that organizations like the NFL should be paying. And I wonder if there are other... Uh, similarly tax-exempt organizations that are benefiting, admittedly somewhat indirectly, from a system that they do nothing to support. For example, Church of Scientology. <laughs> what a marvelous example, Alan. <laughs> I mean, as, as a religious organization, they also do not pay taxes. They are also in the same... I mean, you could classify the NFL as a religion, I guess, in a lot of different... Maybe for some people. Yeah, for a lot of folks. <laughs> I mean, judging. if you're going to classify Scientology as a religion, you can definitely <laughs> classify the NFL as a religion. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it, it, it is every Sunday, right? You know, <laughs> That's it, true. It, it does it does hold up in a lot of ways. No, but I think I think your your point is well taken to say like by giving someone tax exempt status, you are depriving our systems, our structures, the things that we theoretically use to make our society go of the the lubricant of money that they need to keep going. So, you know, Joel, what do you think the nine point five billion dollars in taxable revenue? What does that correspond to in your mind? as something that you would rather spend that money on? So many things. Um, well, for one, as a recent college graduate who's got a lot of student loan debt, <laughs> who is trying to do stuff to help other people, it'd be nice if that money was spent on education. Mm -hmm. I know people see that as like, oh, it's what everyone says, because it's easy to support education. But like, seriously, if you think about <laughs> it, if we supported education, a lot of people would be better off. A lot of people wouldn't have loan debt, they could buy a house, they could buy a car or a sustainable car and ride a bike, a really, really nice bike. Um, 
They could do a lot of things that could support the economy, and then maybe they could go and buy a Super Bowl ticket because they don't have student loan debt payments to pay off, and the NFL would be just fine. Made a lot of economics. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, I mean, I, I also wonder um, just sort of philosophically uh, what you think about a, 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 a bee in our particular bonnet on this show is the idea that um, if you look if you look at things in a certain way, it would really make much more sense for uh, professional sports to be collectivized um, <laughs> and that teams should be owned by, in some sense, by the fans that support them and that generate all the revenue that they use to not pay taxes on. <laughs> um, and uh, so I wonder if there isn't, you know, maybe a larger conversation to be had here about how little accountability there is on the part of professional sports organizations to the kind of ravening maw that uh, allows them to exist. When you say that, it sounds like you're just throwing the players to the masses. <laughs> when in fact, it's the other way around. This is true. This is true. Um, it's interesting when you think about it in terms of like sports stadiums, for example, and like yeah. the effect that's <laughs> sport, the negative impact that sports stadiums. One, the construction and the fact that people sell it as like this idea, like this um, this big community good that's going to come and create jobs. And like very few people want work in a sports stadium. They probably work minimum wage behind the concession stand or they clean up the stadiums. Not a lot of jobs. They're not high quality jobs. And then you build the stadium, then you don't upkeep the stadium and then you move the stadium all while the people who own the stadium weren't paying taxes as some sort of incentive to move the stadium there in the first place. So no one's really benefiting. <laughs> Except for one that. dude. Well, one really, really rich guy. <laughs> yeah. 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 Who spent too much time tanning in Florida and now owns the San Francisco 49ers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that kind of person. Yep. Um, so so it's interesting. I think it's an interesting concept of um, bringing or allowing people to own sports teams. I think it's an investment that people would actually probably get behind. Yeah. Probably use it to teach young people about investments and savings. Because if you're talking about investing in bonds and starting a retirement fund, people are like, what? But if you're like, hey, you know, want to support the Seahawks, you can um, actually invest in a team. This is a good way to use your money. And X, Y, and Z is happening to your community because of that. That's a different story. Oh, I like that. I, we, that's that. Financial that is, education is a different wrinkle to our buy the Orioles plan. That is, I would say, a more compelling argument than we have been able to articulate <laughs> in seventy nine episodes. <laughs> oh, I think you're hitting at the larger question too of like, you know, what what's the point of them existing? Is it to rake in a lot of cash, have a lot of fancy commercials, make a lot of money, tweet a lot, things like that, or is it actually to bring people together? Like, why is it that teams are situated in different communities and not just? all of the teams in one one city, one big football city. Like, why are they dispersed across the country? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is that is a really interesting question. It gets into that whole thing of, you know, uh, we were talking about stadiums earlier, and cities end up having to mount these campaigns where they say to their citizens, like, please, 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 please uh, allow us to use your tax dollars to build this stadium because people are saying we're like a, a bullshit football town or a bullshit baseball town. But then... Uh, people pay in to to allow that stadium to be built, and then the organization turns around and says, "Oh, you want to come to see a game, and you want to have a good seat? Uh, that's eighty six dollars. You know, <laughs> if you're lucky, it's eighty six dollars." <laughs> okay, so one final question, and then we'll let you go. Tomorrow, you wake up. You have a twenty four hour window as uh, as queen of the world. 
to do something about the way that our corporate structure is organized. What loophole do you close in our corporate tax structure and why? First of all, when you said I woke up as queen of the world, I thought I was Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to put that out there. <laughs> so so how, how do we go about restructuring how we think about this then? Can we do that? I is that something we could legislate? Legislate? I'm not sure. I mean, <laughs> there's policies, of course, but there's this question too of not just which policies you're advocating for but how you frame that advocacy so for example when we talk about you know the one percent while that is excellent framework for revving up the populace it doesn't get the people who are controlling our like campaign finance laws with all their big dollars to be on board um so there's a question of like same thing with like the nfl like Colin Kaepernick, because I do think he's cool, um, <laughs> wore a 13-year-old designer's jersey randomly that he sent him, right? So their hmm. random kid wore his jersey or wore his like outfit to a press conference, clearly cares about the people. I think there's an opportunity to actually utilize the folks that we are not necessarily upset with in terms of players, but like the people who are on the other side of the picket line, right? to develop a campaign yeah. that mm -hmm. is a little bit more all-encompassing, mm -hmm. especially since a lot of folks, at least a lot of folks in my generation, are tired of the, like, us versus them mentality. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, let's win a victory over other people. It's like more like, let's think about which policies work better for everyone by trying to get as many people to the table as possible. So I guess that's more of, of where my mindset is right now. You, you young people with your ideas. My <laughs> <laughs> wide-eyed idealism, yes. Dig it, The home of the all-weather fan. This is Alan Smith. And this is Sam Dingman. Ladies and gentlemen, as we mentioned earlier, we know you miss baseball very much. But what you didn't know is that you don't have to wait until the end of March to get that fix in your veins. You have that opportunity merely by not touching that dial. <laughs> Through inaction, you can find strength. It's just like real life, folks. <laughs> We take you now to a live broadcast of a baseball game in Phantom City. And welcome to another exciting evening of Phantom City Muscle Lunges Baseball right here on My 59 Phantom City. Uh, Jeff Sampson here as always. Happy to be with you. Be with my broadcast partner and Phantom City sporting legend, Dick Premis. How are you, Dick? Well, you know, Chip, it's always good to be here with you. Good to see you, as always, partner. Well, the Muskies last night had something of an offensive outburst, cranking four homers against the Winnetonka Spaceman. Yeah, you know, the way the ball's flying out of here, Chip, it was kind of like a seagull with a shaved ass. It was flying just as far as fast as it wanted to, and everybody just watching it go. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's all four of those hummers uh, coming off of Winnetonka stat ace Marvin Mumraw, not known for giving up a long ball. You know, Chip, if I was flying anywhere, I'd do it in the vanilla spaceship. I think we all would, partner. And uh, here come the Muskies taking the field for the top of the first now. And uh, we're almost set for baseball here on my 59. Well, of course, there are only nine innings left in the game, Chip, so this will be the last stand for the Muskies. Yeah, and uh, they will have to make every out count. 
Uh, but of course, the opposing team will have to dig in first, and that'll be speedy leadoff man, the center fielder Byron Skeletor, digging in against Husky's uh, <laughs> right-hander Damian Forsythe. Now, the thing that Forsythe's <laughs> going to try to do right here is he's going to try to throw pitches with his hand that uh, Skeletor can't hit with his baseball bat. <laughs> <laughs> trainers come up and just set his tail on fire a little bit. Like just, yeah, absolutely. Straight out of the barn and into the hearts of the Winnetonka fans. Well, we're almost here. And uh, we'd like to take a minute to remind you as Skeletor steps up to the plate that this broadcast is available for our amigos and Espanol by hitting the SAP button on your remote. You know, it's like we used to say back in the Mexico League's chip, uh, je veux dres and crescent. Motore fell as Bodon's latex. It sure is. And uh, we're all set here. Forsyth winds up, delivers, and there's a call. Strike one on the outside corner. And that's exactly how you want to start Skeletor off. Don't want to give him a free pass. He's the table setter for this one of the team. Mmm, yams, Chip. Buttery, buttery yams. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like a table set with buttery yams, personally. <laughs> have you ever been to George Brett's house for Thanksgiving? I can't say I've had the pleasure. Neither have I. Yeah, well, very few people have. Brett, an incredibly secretive man. <laughs> By a mile. You know, it's a good thing, Chip, the bases are only 90 feet apart instead of 5,208. Otherwise, nobody would ever get to them unless they were super duper fast. Yeah, let's run down the starting lineups for you super duper fast. Uh, brought to you, as always, by Steamfitters Local 173, fitting the scheme of tomorrow, yesteryear, and today. And uh, Brian Skeletor, the speedy leadoff man, you've already seen him. Paul Beastman in the two hole, second baseman, doubles hitter, a lot of gap power. And batting third, Big Dan Hordak, the slugger. Eight home runs on the end season already, on pace for a career offensive year for the Winnipeg. You know the thing about Hordak is that he's got these great big teeth. I think one of these days we're going to see him catch a fastball right in his mouth and just spit back to his box for a hit, just patooey. Yeah. You know who he reminds me of? Smiling Ernie Horowitz. Smiling Ernie Horowitz. Difficult to forget Smiling Ernie. Mm -hmm. You know, pitchers used to have nightmares about him. They'd be like, oh man, is Smiling Ernie Horowitz going to come into my house and eat my children? Yeah. More often than not, he did. <laughs> Great player, of course, his best years uh, with the Thermopolis Wyoming excuses. Unfortunately, uh, ended his career early due to jail time. Yeah, indeed. Well, nevertheless, here's Beastman, a switch hitter, betting bad. Switch hitter, sorry, excuse me, betting from the left That's side. That's all right, Chip, you're doing just fine. I'm so drunk. <laughs> <laughs> betting from the left side now, and the first pitch to him will be a breaking ball, low ball one. You know what you have to wonder here, Chip, is what do you think a baseball tastes like? I figure it's probably pretty well seasoned, you know, everybody's fingers on it, you know, it's kind of, kind of sweaty. Yeah, that's a good question, partner. And, oh, Forsyth will throw over to first just to keep Skeletor honest. He's not going anywhere. Do you think that's what the rosin bag is for? Like a powdered sugar type uh, <laughs> situation? It could be, partner. It could be. And, oh, there he goes for second base. Swung on and missed by Beastman. The throw to second is not in time. And Skeletor in there easily. My goodness, that is his fifth stolen bag of the season. Well, let's take a look at the replay here. Chip, you're going to see Skeletor slide in there like a spermatozoa penetrating an ovum. Spiderwick under it. He'll settle under it for the out. But, oh, 
There goes Skeletor, tagging for third base. Great arm on Spider-Man, Skeletor just too darn fast. You know, Skeletor moving over to third base reminds me of the French Revolution. <laughs> you know, because of the third estate. All right. Now, the difference, the difference here, Chip, is that it's third base, and no government is being overthrown. Skeletor definitely serves you lots, nonetheless. The thing about Rogue's Pierre, though, is that he was, was kind of like the uh, like the knuckleball, the dictators. One day, one day he's dancing around all funny. Oh, you can't figure him out. You can't figure him out. But the next day he's hanging right out there, and you can just wham and chop his head right off. The skeleton refers to have retrieved his pants now, so uh, we're ready to return the baseball here. And uh, it is a man 90 feet away from home with one out of the slugger, Dan Hordak, coming up to the plate. This cannot be the way Muskie's manager, Ted Frankenstein, wanted to start off the game. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what, Chip. Catfish. Uh, what about it? He used to play baseball. He certainly did. Well, Horvath said again. Got that big open stance, likes to pull those inside pitches, and the Muskies are going to shift way over for Horvath. Yeah, that's a pretty profound shift, Chip. You know, these changes in latitudes, changes in attitudes, nothing remains quite the same. The Muskies will be trying to get the force at home plate on anything into the right side of the infield. I'll tell you what, Chip, with all of our running and all of our gunning, if we couldn't laugh, we would all go insane. <laughs> Sam Dingman and Ben Mastin uh, performing their sketch as a part of the audience of two. What was that? Comedy group? <laughs> That's how we thought of ourselves. Experience? <laughs> state of mind? <laughs> definitely experience. Definitely state of mind. Comedy group, probably the least apt term <laughs> to describe what we were up to. Uh, thank you very much to Ben for his many years of comedic partnership uh, before he decided that he had better things to do in Texas then hang around up here in these parts. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we hope you have enjoyed the program this evening. And as always, we invite you to get in touch with us through one of the various means that we have established for you to do that. You can find out about all of them by going to bemorons.com and clicking on 
contact us. We did actually, we did receive uh, two very good emails from our listener, Adam, who was upset about a number of points we made at the expense of the Minnesota Twins. Right, um, that's true. We were a little bit harsh on the Twins, but Adam... Um, it's just so easy to do. <laughs> Adam uh, did, I think, make one very salient point. Jack Morris should have been in the Hall of Fame. And we don't have a lot of time to discuss this, but uh, <laughs> as you have, as you already know on the show, that there are uh, a couple of different definitions of what the Hall of Fame should be. But I think that anyone who could carry the belt of at any moment in time being the most exciting player in baseball gets to be in the Hall of Fame. And Jack Morris did pitch a complete game shutout in Game 7 of the World Series. And I think that no matter how flash in the pan you are, and I don't think Jack Morris was particularly flash in the pan, that's pretty electrifying and that's pretty amazing and he should be in. I, I just, And again, we don't have time to talk about it. I just want to say that by that line of reasoning... We should also put Hideki Matsui and Delman Young in the Hall of Fame because both of them enjoyed postseasons of recent vintage, which were statistically absurd. Edgar Renteria, another guy. I mean, I I, I think if you look at his overall uh, 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 a line, overall, Morris was may, way more impressive than either of the people you just mentioned. I, I'll see you at the Jack Morris-Edgar Renteria induction ceremony, <laughs> sir. <laughs> The music on the show, ladies and gentlemen, was, of course, our theme song by Marshall York, the interstitial music, uh, working for another song by the band Town Hall, with, uh, Birdland by the band Weather Report. <laughs> <laughs> I am so bad at this job. Um, a little clip from Sample in a Jar by Fish, and behind us now it's Kicking My Heart Around by the Black Crows. He pitched 10 innings, Sam. Ten innings of zero run ball. And Edgar Renteria, I believe, stole over 300 bases. So why don't we just, let's let's get Vince Coleman in, too. I mean, what is this? What is this? The Soviet Union? Why are we? <laughs> oh, man. So, Sam. Yes. What do you call... Henry Urrutia when he is playing the role of Randall Patrick Mur McMurphy in a film adaptation of Ken Casey's seminal novel. I would call him Henry One Flew Rudia over the Cuckoo Rudia's nest. Good night! Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com. <laughs>